number you have dialed has been changed. The new number is... Welcome to the Stuart Knight Show, where interesting, intriguing, and exciting people engage in unscripted exchanges of ideas, stories, and perspectives. It's not an interview. It's a powerful conversation. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to the Stuart Knight Show. I'm glad you could tune in today so we could have a conversation that might help you boycott some of your old way of thinking and more importantly, help you really design the life that you want to create and help you really just kind of take a look at those relationships that you're building with the world around you and whether or not there's some changes you can make that will help you build a world that is more specific to the things that you want. And today, to help me do that, I am so excited about my guest. His name is Mubin Sheikh, and he is a guy with a crazy story. I mean, he's raised in Canada, uh, born in Canada, but he grew up with two conflicting and competing cultures. I mean, at the age of 19, he went off to India and Pakistan, uh, where he had a, you know, a chance encounter with a Taliban. I mean, okay, I'm going to get him talking about that, but they really uh, had a big influence on the way that he saw uh, the world around him, and he really became a fully radicalized. Uh, he became fully radicalized as a supporter of the global jihadist culture, uh, where he was even recruiting other people to come into that world as well. Now he's no longer in that world, and he'll tell you that story. But uh, he has since then been recruited to work uh, with the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. He's worked on several classified infiltration operations. Uh, he has worked with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. He's worked with the Integrated National Security Enforcement Team over there. I mean, I could go on and on and on. Um, on top of that, he's also obtained a Master of Policing, Intelligence and Counterterrorism, and is a PhD candidate in Psychological Sciences studying radicalization, de-radicalization, and violent extreme extremism at the University of Liverpool. Now, that's an old uh, bio of his, so he might uh, have done that by now, or maybe he's switched into something else we're going to find out during this conversation. So, folks, let me just say, welcome, Mubin. Stuart, thanks for having me. My pleasure, my friend. I know that's uh, a long bio, but you've done a lot of things in, in, in your short life, so um, I think we should just dive right into it, because I think a bio only gives a small snapshot of, of what's happened with you. So, just like, give me like in two minutes or less, like tell my listeners, because I know your story, because you and I have worked together in the past, but tell my listeners who might not know you about your story of kind of becoming an Islamic uh, extremist to working for the Canadian government. What the hell happened there? Yeah. Well, uh, like you mentioned, I'm, I'm born and raised in Toronto, Canada. I uh, come from an Indian background, Indian Muslim background. And like a lot of kids who came at that time, uh, first generation born, so our parents were born somewhere else. Uh, we are always looking to to fit in, all right, to see what part of this culture uh, can we take on and which part is are we not supposed to take on according to the cultural construct. Mm-hmm. So I grew up with this uh, competing, uh, you know, competing interests and, and competing identities. So at 18 years of age, uh, stupid part of my story, but kind of funny, I guess, <laughs> I had a house party. I got caught at the house party. Right. Uh, shame and guilt uh, told me that I need to go and quote unquote get religious to fix my my life and salvage my reputation. So 1995, I would go to India and Pakistan. In Pakistan, I had a chance encounter with the Taliban, mm-hmm. uh, and I was bit by the jihadi bug after that encounter. So I came back to Canada, uh, kept up my kept up my uh, my extremist. Um, a mentality for about six years. And when the 9-11 attacks happened, that's what really convinced me to reconsider my commitment to the cause. So I decided I need to go and study my religion properly. I would then move to uh, Syria. This is in 2002 before the war, of course. Mm-hmm. Spent two years in Syria, went through a period of de-radicalization after being introduced to uh, the Sufis, uh, they were like the mystics of the religion. Right. Or I always describe them, the Sufis are like uh, the Jedi's of the Muslim world, <laughs> like the, the monks, the monks of the Muslim world. That's right. Right. And so I spent two years there. 2004, uh, I had enough. Came back to Canada and effectively became what's called a walk-in to the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. This is where somebody just volunteers to come in. Uh, so I was uh, vet- vetted by them, of course. Mm-hmm. One of the things I did when I went to Syria was I registered with the Canadian Embassy. So that was a smart move on my part. <laughs> right. Um, and they were very happy to. They're very, very happy that I had done that because obviously this is a person who's not trying to trying to hide and and is not up to any uh, nefarious activities. Right. Okay. So I came back and then I worked a number of years with the intelligence service undercover. 
uh, infiltrating extremist groups, terrorist cells. And then one one day in 2005, I was sent to a case uh, to investigate a case that became a huge public prosecution called the Toronto 18. Mm -hmm. 18 people were arrested. The court case lasted four years uh, in five different legal hearings. Uh, this is when I did my master's degree. And then in 2010, when I was done, I hit social media and started to see the rise of ISIS in real time. Right. And so started to infiltrate their networks just for my own personal project purposes. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was in this time that I started to see all these foreign fighters that we're talking about. And especially now we're talking about individuals who are part, who are members of ISIS, who are overseas, who now want to come back. And so, uh, and so in the time since, I've really just been training the military, uh, the U.S. military, their special forces, and trying to get a grip on, on this issue. That's amazing, right? And so uh, there's so much to unpack there. And it's interesting how we do find ourselves in situations, no matter who we are, when we're young, wanting to identify with particular kind of groups. For some people, it might be... I don't know, it could be uh, the, 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 a, a group that listens to a particular kind of music. Uh, for other people, it might be uh, people who are doing things that maybe are considered bad, like smoking pot or smoking cigarettes. Um, and then for other people, they get into even worse situations where they really join a group that they feel at that time in their life really um, helps them identify with who they think they really are. And in many cases, they don't have that aha moment that you had, which was, holy shit, this is not who I am. And, and you're saying that happened in, in, after 9-11. So what happened there? Well, I, I remember that day very vividly. It was Tuesday morning. I was working at uh, another terrorist organization called Student Loans. Okay. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. And a uh, little joke there. I like that. Uh, I mean, it was, like a, it was like a, you know, student loan processing center. And mm -hmm. I was driving to work, and I heard on the radio a plane had hit the building. Right. Now, I immediately thought I, – I did feel a little bit of, of, of happiness. Okay. Uh, I, I thought I was supposed to hate the U.S., and if anything bad happened to the U.S., that was good. Okay. And so that's, that's the feeling that I had at the time. And then as the day went on, I, I realized that you know, there's, there's nothing good about this, right? I mean it's, it's going to bring – uh, God knows what to the Middle East, and we saw what it did after 9/11. Two mm -hmm. big wars, Afghanistan and Iraq. Mm -hmm. And uh, but more importantly, what had happened was, I remember going back home at lunchtime, and my wife was watching the TV with, you know, with intense interest, and and basically said to me, uh, she made the joke like, "Are you sure you didn't have anything to do with this? Because people are calling us." Wow. And what she meant was that my Muslim friends were calling me saying, you know, my good Muslim friends saying, Mubin, you know, this is not a religion. This is not what we're about. My non-Muslim friends were calling me, asking me, Mubin, is this your religion? Is this what you've become? Wow. So that day was really, it really forced me to reevaluate, you know, where I was in life. And later that evening when I ended up hooking up with uh, the bad Muslim guys, they were, they were ecstatic. They were very happy what had happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember there was a small conversation with some of our, our, you know, fellows and we basically said, look, like one guy asked, like, I get the whole jihad thing, but what's this? Like, these people are innocent people. They're not, they don't, they're not combatants. Mm -hmm. They have nothing to do with the decision making of going to war. Uh, but then the, the, the mouthpiece was there was just kind of said, well, well, they're all infidels anyway. They're all kufar anyway. So it doesn't matter. Right. And, and for and, those who are listening right now, infidels basically means if you're not Muslim, you are an infidel. Is that correct? Yeah, pretty much. That's yeah. the uh, that's that's how the bad guys see it. So, right. Uh, and, and so uh, you know, and then he said, "Well, they're all kufar anyway." And then me, I looked over at a buddy of mine, and he looked back at me, and we were like, mm, that, "That doesn't sound right." And so, and what does that word mean? Which word? Uh, kufar, you said. Kufar. Yeah. It's it's it's. It technically means a disbeliever, right? I mean, mm -hmm. technically, it means somebody who knows that Islam is the truth but denies it or hides it or obfuscates it. Right. And fortunately, what a lot of these bad Muslims have done is they've just taken that to say anyone that's not Muslim. Okay. Right? Okay. That's so when you say they were celebrating, um, give us a picture of that. I mean, when you uh, – was it, did you meet at a mosque when you – or were you at someone's house? Yeah, we were at someone's house. Okay, um, and then when when they were, were were people like literally 
jumping up and down dancing? Were they happy? Or was it more of just a shaking hands? Isn't this great? Like, what did that actually look like? Yeah, it was, a, you can say it was a jubilant atmosphere. Okay. So we, we heard a lot about this. I mean, even after 9-11 in the U.S., there were supposedly stories of you know, Muslims celebrating in New Jersey. But I think that clip was debunked. It was actually a clip out of uh, some different part of the world. Right. But but the thing is, is that I I could see, I could see how that was true because there were a lot of people who despised the U.S. for a variety of reasons. And uh, like I also thought, look, something bad happened to them, so that's a good thing. Right. And that was the, and that was the attitude that they had. So when you think about people um, in other parts of the world who are joining the jihadist movement, they obviously, in many cases, don't come from the wonderful world that you and I come from, which is growing up in this beautiful country called Canada and having access to education and healthcare and 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 for the most part, a loving family. So do they, too, decide to become part of the jihadist movement because they're looking for something to belong to? Or is it more in their case because maybe they're living in, in, in poverty, they don't have anything else to live for, or because they actually have been at the receiving end of American bombs and it's more of a retaliation thing? Because like, is, is it the same reason that you joined or is it different reasons? Well, I would say that uh, you know there are some aspects to our humanity that are shared across the the board. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know things like sense of meaning and belonging, uh, these are things that apply to everyone anywhere. Right. But then there are external factors that will be more prevalent in one group versus another. Mm-hmm. So the the whole concept of grievances. Uh, so there's this wonderful quote. Uh, Peter Newman, he's the director of the International Center for the Study of Radicalization. It's, a, it's an outfit in the, in the UK. And he says, ideology without grievances doesn't resonate. Hmm. And grievances without ideology are not acted upon. All right. Interesting. So now when you're in a place that is the recipient of, let's say, U.S. bombs, your grievance awareness is going to be much higher. Mm-hmm. And because that grievance awareness is higher, the ideology that's then presented as a response to what they're seeing uh, has that much more resonance with the people. So for somebody like me, who's so far removed geographically and physically from those places, what ends up happening, and this is the, the whole the, you know, phenomenon of, of radicalization uh, by the internet, is when I or somebody like me is sitting in the West and looking at videos of, quote unquote, my people mm-hmm. being abused and killed over there, then the psychologists call this a vicarious suffering. Okay. Basically, you start to feel that you are suffering like your people over there are suffering. Okay. And so you will start to develop the same sentiments and feelings within you. So while it is true that there are some differences, especially because of where we are and where I was in Canada, of course, so far removed, uh, the proximity was given because of the Internet. And so we say that that the Internet becomes an amplifier, a force multiplier of this kind of radicalization. I see. Interesting then. So so that's what you're saying then is with, with respect to your you, if you are living in one of these countries um, and you do find yourself in a situation where – <clears throat> excuse me, where um, you get a bomb dropped on your neighborhood or uh, you get some sort of sanctions taken uh, out on your country and you're seeing, let's say, your sister not have access to health care and she ends up dying because she needed access to some sort of drug that could have saved her life. Or you see somebody who is somebody you loved who ends up getting uh, shot and assassinated or, or just in, in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, and then all of a sudden you're angry, and then religion has the answer in a sense. Religion says, you know, look at this, look at these um, these lines within, in this case, the Quran or any religious text for that matter. But it proves to us that we need to retaliate. It proves this is what we're talking about. Like, is like, is that why people kind of use religion as the thing that they go to because it's the one that has the answers to the pain that they're feeling? Yeah, I think uh, this is one of the, I think, selling features of religion is, uh, in any religion, of course, they, yeah. they always have the answer. Mm-hmm. And uh, But I always I always describe, I say that religion is like a hammer. Okay. You can either build a home with it or you can destroy a home with it. It just depends on your perspective. Right. So, 
right? So, I mean, the the various scriptures will have, uh, especially those scriptures that were written in periods where there was conflict, whether you're reading the Bible or uh, even the, the Bhagavad Gita, mm. the Quran, uh, it, it, they all have these stories that you can always refer back to. So this is exactly what people do. They say, look, this thing that's happening, uh, this is the reason why, and here's my take on it. And, you know, there's been a lot of theories on radicalization by academics who talk about this stuff and really go into the psychology of it. But there's a really good one, very basic, where he, he basically gives four steps. It's, it starts with, it's not right. Mm -hmm. It's not fair. It's your fault. You're evil. Okay. All right. So there is this uh, understanding of the environment identifying the inequality in the environment, attributing blame to somebody, and then demonizing that somebody, because why else would they do that to you if they weren't evil? Right. So okay. uh, so this is, the, this is the mindset and the mentality, how somebody living in that kind of environment can very easily go down that path. So then with the access that we have to information these days, and I know that certain people in certain parts of the world will ha perhaps have greater liberties with respect to the amount that they can surf the internet. Um, but for the most part, it just seems like so many people around the world have a smartphone these days or a cell phone that they can then access information. We've never had greater access to information ever in the history of time. How is it then that people who are in these countries don't find themselves saying, yeah, I mean, I get that this particular religious text seems to have the answers, and it does make sense. However, God, you know, there's a lot of information I've read about the way that my particular religion came to be. When I look at some of the historical texts, um, it's difficult for me to swallow and, and, and believe a lot of the things that you're saying. Like, how do they not get there? Because I, I guess that's the one thing that a lot of people think, is like, how does common sense not prevail? Is it is it Does it take work to just kind of block yourself off from all this other, uh, I guess, competing information? Yeah, well, you know, there's a saying, common sense isn't so common. Right, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I think it's it's uh, the result of their environment, right? I mean, when you're living under a dictatorship, for example, uh, your, you know, the, the way in which you can express yourself, the levels of education you have access to are severely compromised. Right. And uh, especially in places where you have ignorant theologians, mm -hmm. you know, who are a product of that, let's say, either dictatorship or what I call a village mentality. Right. They, they still come from places that are, you know, still quite removed from they just haven't moved on. Right. Because certain societies uh, it, it takes is one thing I've learned. I mean, to change learned behavior is a monumental task and a monumental feat. Mm -hmm. And it requires the cooperation of governments and institutions and theologians. And this, unfortunately, is not what's happening in a lot of places in the world. And so. Uh, the 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 individuals who are living in that environment, they're not going to come to the same conclusions we do. Uh, they may not have uh, the same access to information that we do. And even if they do have that access, they don't have access to the opportunities that we do. Right. And I think that's the key point. You know, you raise a very good point because I, I found myself, I was in Egypt uh, about eight months ago, and I was just really blown away by how naive the citizens of that country are and um and i guess how ignorant and i don't want to use that word because they're wonderful people but when i say ignorant in the sense that they have been blocked off from so much information for so many years that we could sit over here and say hey how do you not even know this information where it's we don't realize there have they have people whose lives are dedicated within the government even to make sure that you do not get that information um, as an example of that, I was speaking to some young guy, and it made it more challenging for me to see this. He was younger than me. He was probably in his 30s, spoke English really well, and we had dinner together one night. And I don't even know, just through regular conversation at one point, I started talking about how old humankind is. And he kind of chuckled, and he says, well, you know, what is it, like 10,000 years old or something like that? And I thought, what do you mean? I said, no, that humankind is, is millions of years old. And he he looked at me like I had two heads, and he said... No, that's absolutely untrue. There's no, there's no life basically before Muhammad was, was, was the point that he was trying to make. And I said, well, no, I mean, there's actual like um, anthropologists uh, who have 
discovered the bones of uh, human skeletons that are as old as four million years old in Ethiopia. I call I said it's called the Australopithecus, uh, the one of the original ones. They they named her Lucy, and once again he looked at me like I was literally saying that there are people right now uh, having a dance party on Mars. Like it did, it, he thought I was crazy, and and I said you don't know that, and he said no, that that's not true, and I in that moment realized just how much the culture within this particular um, Islamic state-run country is um, really, they just don't have the access to the information. Yeah, I, I mean, it's 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 sad for me as a Muslim because, I mean, a lot of times we talk about the Islamic golden age. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and it was, for all intents and purposes, the, you know, the, the go-to place in the world. You know, when we, uh, you know, when we talk about uh, going all the way to Timbuktu, uh, you know, where that came from is because Timbuktu was the furthest point that a European uh, researcher could go at that time. Okay. Uh, to study and obtain knowledge because the Muslim world at that time became the locus and focus of uh, various kinds of knowledge, right? So uh, Muslim scientists were very active in astronomy and uh, you name it. I mean, they were very, very active. And it's it's ironic because this activity came about as a result of the Quran. Mm-hmm. The Quran talked about – because the Quran is a guide. It's not a textbook or science textbook or whatever mm-hmm. – but it, it, you know, there were verses in it, for example, like, you know, God is saying, you know, look at, look for the proof of me in the stars above and even in your bodies, within your own bodies. Mm-hmm. So some of these scholars went on and said, huh, let's look at the stars, right? Let's look into our bodies. And so they became astronomers and they became physicians, right? They became scientists. Uh, but, you know, that was a long time ago. And what happened was there was this stagnation in the Muslim world. Uh, and then, you know, as time went on, the Europeans went to North America. There was an ascendancy of the Europeans in that sense. And there was a descendancy of the Muslim world. Right. And this is when you start to get all these dictatorships. And now the level of knowledge decreases. The topic, the subjects of science that were previously being discussed and, and studied and taught uh, fell into complete misuse. So it's funny when we, we talk about evolution, for example, uh a Muslim scholar, a Muslim scientist actually came out with the theory of evolution long before Darwin did. Is that right? And 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 in in fact, if a Muslim guy was to repeat the same thing that that Muslim scholar said back then and re- repeated it today, he would probably be stoned if not, you know, mobbed to death. Right. And that so was that, because why? Because cause I, do, I do know this. I do know of the Golden Age, and I've read a lot about that, about how the, the Muslim world was the world where you had the best scientists and the, 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 the biggest scholars and the people that were most forward-thinking, and then all of a sudden it almost kind of went into the Dark Ages. Um, was it, remind me, was it the Quran or was it just the, the mullahs of the area? Was it the religious leaders of that time who were saying... No, 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 no. Like, let's not go down this path anymore because what was that? That's what the West is doing. Or what? What happened? What? What, what was the shift? Yeah, there, there was this. Well, I would say really the, the biggest shift comes um, uh, around the time of uh, World War II. Really? Okay. Uh, I mean, so the countries that we have today are a result of the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Really, mm-hmm. uh, the Ottoman Empire was around really from the 1500s. They lasted, you know, a good 400 years. Uh, and, you know, by 1920s, they were referring to, you know, the Ottoman Empire as the sick man of Europe. Right. Uh, so a lot of stuff had started to decline. And then you also started to see a lot of socialism um, that came into these countries mm-hmm. uh, because of uh, Axis powers and, and others who were also trying to project force and influence into these areas. So uh, what happened is it became a very state-centric system. Um, and because that state-centric system was set up uh, for the express purpose of uh, re- refuting or rebutting or pushing back against the European West. And so you're right. Everything was kind of seen as if it came from the West, it was held in – it was suspect mm-hmm. uh, and it had to be dismissed and it had to be countered. And I think this is where that mentality came from, that suddenly anything from the West is – you know, inherently anti-Muslim, right. which is, is, again, it's just so ironic because, you know, uh, um, 
the European Enlightenment period was greatly influenced by Muslim writings, by Islamic philosophers. Right. Right. And so for Muslims today that and I do hear it still. I mean, there is this. No, they are non-Muslims and we are Muslims. So we got to do things differently than them. But it's like, yeah, but wait a second. You're they've they've taken a lot. The West has taken so much from the Muslim world that, in fact, you're actually rejecting Islamic influence in the West. You're rejecting yourself on yeah. some weird level. Yeah, you're rejecting yourself. So it's just, it's just a sad state of affairs where they've they've had they've be, they've put these blinders on themselves and just refuse to see past that that barrier. Well, you know, it's funny because I I feel about this with almost anything in life about how easily we as a species can become so blinded to the other possibilities uh, of what could be and we get so focused on what we think is real and I, I use a an easy example of that even even nine to five working um, most of the world and at least the western world for sure has just accepted that yes a person should start their job at nine and should end their day at five and we've held that within our minds to be true and yet like, and that's been true for so many years, especially since the Industrial Revolution. So why is it that we don't once in a while, every couple of years, step back and say, hey, is that is that working? Like, should we maybe question to see if maybe there's a better way of doing it? Maybe it should be from 10 to 6. Maybe it should just be from, you know, 9 to, to 2 in the clock in the afternoon. And maybe if we all went home and just had a nap and then came back to work the next day, we'd actually be more productive. I mean, I don't know what the, the combination is, but yet no one questions it and and then you just take that mentality and you apply it to anything like marriage everyone just assumes you should get married everyone assumes that you went you're married you should have children everyone assumes that you should have a certain amount of money in the bank and on and on and on all these rules that we've just bought into without questioning and i think some of these rules are great and they do offer guidance and i think there's certain things that that make sense like i don't think that we should kill our neighbors and i don't think that we should uh you know, commit adultery if that's something that you have not agreed upon <laughs> with your partner. Um, and so yet when these scholars back in the day, uh, you know, find themselves um, kind of passing on this information and then the descendants of those scholars now look at that information and say it's bad just because it came from a particular part of the world, not realizing it actually started in your own world. Um, it's just such a blind way of going through life, and it just makes our own personal evolution so slow. Yeah, I think this is a society's way of – this is Western society's uh, system, right? It's If you really want to track the root of it, it goes back to the Prussian system. Mm-hmm. Uh, this the fact that we send our kids to school from nine to five. Right. It's it's like prepping them for the corporate world, right, for, the, for their nine to five shift. Right. And um, – it's uh, I mean, just the way that you mention it, like talking about like the, the afternoon siesta, mm-hmm. right? I mean, now you can imagine these are things that are prevalent in really hot countries, right? right? It gets really hot after the, the zenith of the sun, once the, the sun hits the its peak and then starts to kind of drop a bit. That's the hottest time of the day. So it, it's it's natural, I think, for them to develop this. Hey, you know what? Let's take a break. Mm-hmm. Let's take a rest. Let's take a nap. It's so hot. Uh, and it works for them, right? And right. It's, it's something. I mean, if you, it's you know, it's it's weird because if you if you do go over, and for those, I mean, who do go over to different parts of the world, whether Southeast Asia or the Middle East, or you know what, you'll 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 find that people are more happy there. Yeah. Yes, they really are. I mean, they they don't have a lot. And uh, I remember even when I was living in Syria, I remember thinking, not out loud. Wow, these guys are – they have this idea of what they want to do, this and that. But I know for a fact that the country in which they live does not afford them the opportunity that they need to achieve their goals. Right. But here they are, very happy. They they know their plan and and it's okay for them. And so I don't know if that's like a, a form of of, of um, you know just kind of uh, ignorance like and again in a good way. Um, I don't know what it is, right? But they've almost been but forced it works into for it. them. Yeah, it, and 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 it works for them, right? According to their 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 environment and their system. And so, I mean, I, I think, well, I personally think we should be having three day work weeks. All right, I think <laughs> I'm uh, with you. I'm with you. Four day work week. I mean, you can stretch out the shift to you know ten hours. That's fine, I think. Right. And then get three days off. So yeah, well, I it think can that... be done. But I mean, even you'll find in a society as advanced as ours, it's very difficult to 
to change the direction of society so quickly. I agree. Yeah. So what do you see from like your you're on the pulse uh, with respect to a lot of these Muslim oriented or majority Muslim uh, countries? Are people beginning to question things more or are they beginning to question things less? Are they are they visiting um, the idea of new possibilities or new explanations to uh, their history than, than relying just on the Quran, or is it getting um, are they becoming more stringent? What, what, what are you noticing from what because you're, you're obviously more on that pulse than I am? Yeah, I, I see two trends happening. One is the um, you know getting more information and learning more about the world around them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think uh, what ISIS showed a lot of people is, I mean, they just, it was the absolute, I mean, worst manifestation of, uh, of the Islamic religion in modern time. And people saw that, right? Mm. They saw that with their own eyes. I mean, there was something to be said about the theory of a lot of Islamist philosophy that, oh, if only we follow our religion more stringently, then we'll, then we'll be uh, on a better footing. And then we will reclaim our lost glory of our civilization. Uh, but then others are like, mm, yeah, but, uh, you know, the garbage is not being taken out and the uh, sewage sucks and the water isn't clean and my medical services are terrible. So it's a very realistic, uh, you know, um, a reality check for them, right? They right. see that, mm, well, there you have this theory, but then I'm looking at this practice and it's not... It's not helping me. It's not good. I'm not happy. Mm. The world hates us. There are bombs falling on us, so maybe this isn't the best course of action. Right. Okay. And and that's one trend. The other, I would say, is unfortunately the doubling down effect. Right. Right. Uh, and, and like in philosophy, they talk about this as well, like as a logical fallacy where people whose views are challenged so robustly, they they don't know what to do. They don't know what to say. So they just default back to, well, I'm just going to keep believing what I believe because it's the right way. And some people and, are saying this is what's happening now in the United States with, with the Trump supporters, where yeah. in the beginning there was a real belief that he was going to do the things he said. That he was going to bring their jobs back. He was going to save the economy. He was going to um, give them their social status back in society. And um, now that, that it hasn't happened, uh, the idea of admitting that maybe you are wrong is so embarrassing for some people. Very that, difficult. Yeah, yeah, it's just easier to double down and say, no, no, no. I've always said that uh, that he's great. In fact, I don't even care if if he doesn't get me my job back. Yeah, I, I mean, and I see this in the Muslim world too, right? I mean, this is, for example, the the support that people had of characters like Osama bin Laden, mm-hmm. right? Uh, he was seen as this revolutionary figure uh, who was going to fight back the the ungodly and evil Americans who had been who are bombing Muslim countries for decades and decades, uh, you know, not staying like, you know, for example, I always make this argument that uh, if you look at Germany and 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 Japan, right, the the European powers destroyed those those countries, okay? Yeah. Um, but, you know, what they did also is they stayed and they invested in the countries and they helped build them back up. Right. Now Germany and Japan are, you know, superpowers mm-hmm. when it comes to the economy. Uh, they didn't do that in the Middle East. They just they just left with the bombings and there was no investment. Right. Uh, so I think that's a large reason why we're seeing what we're seeing. So this this uh, people will do that because the 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 idea that they can be wrong is is very difficult for people to accept and process. Yes, uh, because we have this, you know, smugness about ourselves. Uh, you know, it's a human trait. Right. Uh, I know. Right. It's like the teenager. Right. The the quintessential the teenager. Like I got <laughs> three of them, and they know they know everything. Right. And they can't imagine that they may they don't know they 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 don't have the foresight. Uh, they especially don't have hindsight based on experience that adults do. Yes. And so think uh, I think these elements all play together uh, people they want to feel comfortable they want to feel that they've done right and they're doing right and it's it's just terrifying for people to maybe think hmm maybe this isn't the way it's supposed to be maybe I should move on to something else and it's that it's the fear it's the fear of the unknown the fear of something new uh, the fear of them maybe losing their faith um, you know for some people 
and for others, just a, a new interpretation where they have to relearn everything all over again. You know, I think it's so interesting what you just said about the idea of being wrong and how difficult it is for people to admit that. And it really is not something that we celebrate in our culture or even, I would say, from most parts of the world. We don't hear it from uh, being from a very young child, uh, as a young child growing up. But no one says, just so you know, if the more times you admit you're wrong in one year, the cooler you are or the better you are or the, the, the more powerful you are, whatever, just choose your way of describing it. And so it's not celebrated within our society so that when we are wrong, somewhere we've been taught or we've been led to believe that what you should do is you should do everything in your power to make sure that nobody thought that nobody. It's almost like when someone's walking down the street and I love this when I, I'll see this and somebody will trip and their very first reaction is to get themselves walking again and make and then they look around I have to make sure that nobody That's saw right. that, right? Which That's is so right. funny because it's like we've all tripped on so many occasions. We all understand what that's like. So if anything, let's look at each other and let's laugh with each other and let's celebrate the fact that you that you made a mistake. You just didn't lift your foot high enough on the curb to get past it. And so um, now you fast forward into the world that we live in today and politicians – if they make a mistake, like how cool would it have been right now if uh, if Trudeau just admitted, yeah, I made a mistake with this whole SNC Lavalin thing. Um, you know, as we as we are recording this show, uh, this is the time when Justin Trudeau is being raked through the coals about whether or not <clears throat> he excuse me he that he uh, he he got his justice uh, minister to, to 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 basically do some favors on behalf of a major corporation. Um, like we as Canadians would just think you're so much cooler. If you go, all right, all right, you know, I made a mistake, or whoever the politician happens to be, we'd be like, we'd have so much more respect for you as opposed to you standing up there and going, nope, I made no mistakes. We've made no mistakes. We are infallible. We are perfect. We just, you know, we uh, we, we we do everything right. And I just, and, and you see this in relationships, my goodness, like to, um, between two people who are who are married or who are in in, in a relationship with each other. Both people just can't admit that they made a mistake, and then they keep wondering why their relationship doesn't grow. And people who are friends, if some friend screws up, they can't admit that they screwed up, but they wonder why their friendship doesn't grow. And the same is true with, with religion. It's like To me, it's like, guys, you know what? If you look at history, no matter what religion it happens to be, you will see that there are some major indiscrepancies. And it's okay, because people at that time... That's what they would have believed. If there was an earthquake, they didn't understand that tectonic plates moved the way that they did under the ground. And for that reason, they thought it was a punishment from some god that they had never seen. That's cool. I get it. But we have the science now to know that tectonic plates aren't mo- are, are actually moving under the ground. So let's just admit we, maybe we made some mistakes along the way. Are you saying that tecton- are you saying it's uh, tectonic plates and not women dressed scantily that causes the earthquakes? That's <laughs> that's just insane, Stuart. I, what was wrong with me? I know. <laughs> How could I even think that? You know, th- I mean, again, this I think we're looking at you know, uh, and I hate to use this 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 uh, term, but like old world thinking, mm-hmm. right? Um, and again, it is it is the lack of education, right? It is the lack of access to education. And uh, and just coming back to, I mean, that the analogy you gave of somebody tripping and immediately looking around to see if anyone saw them fail. Right. And I think this is a key point here, right? When people see you fail and how you feel when that happens. So one of the things that – and so I, I like my little piece of advice, okay? So I kind of I, – I think of myself as a perfectionist. Okay. I don't like to be wrong. I don't like to forget things. I like everything be, to be perfect mm-hmm. all the time. Like little things like when I travel overseas or to the U.S. for training or you know uh, work purposes, when I get up in the morning, I am terrible. Without my morning coffee, I, I don't know – how I even put my pants on, okay? <laughs> uh, so I have to, what I do is the night before, I set everything up on my table ready to go because I know when I get up in the morning, I will, I'll, I'll, where's this, where's that? I'll, I, I right. could forget my passport. It's happened before. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so what I do is I tell myself, okay, well, how do I fix this, right? How do I be perfect? And so I come up with a solution and this is how I do it. Okay. Another thing, I was watching uh, Fail Army, yesterday right it was like <laughs> multiple episodes of fail army people you know people screwing up right 
right? And you see their responses, right? Like people will laugh at them or mm. and they will laugh at themselves, realizing that, yeah, this is so ridiculous. And this is, I think, what people have a hard time doing, admitting that they screwed up. Right. And it's so liberating. If you if you should try it. I mean, it's yep. I did that was wrong. I was wrong there. Uh how do I fix this? Right. It's it's right? okay. Like it, it is okay. Yeah, and it, in fact, you you feel better because now you know how to do it right. That's right. And you'll never make that mistake again, hopefully. Well, so. and people and and this is the thing that that always amazes me that is that there people would rather be in a place in their life where they won't grow, they will not increase their level of happiness, they will not increase their level of uh, satisfaction with life, and on and on, all these great things that could happen. They will actually put that on the shelf what, uh, with the intention of staying right. Like, they'd rather be right than be happy. And, and to me, that is, like, one of the saddest things that I've ever seen. Like, when I, when I meet people who... Um, who won't allow themselves to question, in this case, religion. And it doesn't matter what religion it is. Um, not knowing that if they did, all these other new worlds could open up to them. They'd rather not go into those new worlds because to do so means that they have to tell the world around them that they were, that they were wrong or that they were misled or that they maybe didn't have it perfectly right. And that is, they, they would rather just stay right than have all those possibilities of, of, of happiness. You know, it's the, uh, the age-old example of the, the husband who's lost and doesn't ask for directions. <laughs> right. Right? Yeah. And, 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 and like, I, I laugh at that because, you know, I, I had a little bit of military training. I was in the Army cadets. And they taught us how to read maps. And, and so if I am ever lost anywhere because of whatever I immediately the first thing I will do is stop and ask somebody mm -hmm. because again back to that perfectionist mentality it's like I don't want to be lost right I might I am lost at the current moment now I have a choice I can continue to be lost for the next 30 minutes or I can spend two minutes asking somebody where the heck I am <laughs> and point me in the right direction and so what I was lost for five minutes right yeah so yeah it's just a question of of, of us uh, just swallowing our pride and and just you know doing what we need to do it's as simple as that i've always found, found it interesting when um people walk into let's say a, a shopper's drug mart or a grocery store and they, and they know they've got five items to pick up and i've always been amazed by people who will spend like hours it feels like or like a lot longer than they should have trying to find the items on their alone on their on their own as opposed to asking the experts, which are the people who stock the shelves. So I always walk up to the, the first person I see. I'm like, here yeah, are the first, exactly. You know, here are the first two things I need. And then they'll say, okay, great. Well, here, go go get those two things. And on the way, I'm making a note of where the other employee is because once I've got those next two things, I go here. Now, now I need these three things. I get it. I'm in. I'm out. And I go back to my life. And I'm okay with admitting that I don't know where things are here. This is not my area of expertise. And and yet. We all want to believe that we're experts in every category of our lives and that we can figure it out ourselves and that we don't need any help. It's like, no, just ask. It's okay. that you, You'll be exposed to new ideas and new ways of, uh, of approaching life. And, and, and so, with, you know, I know we're coming to the end of, the, of, the, of, this, of this show today, and, and I wanted to kind of ask you a couple more quick questions. So now that you did do something that so many people from your community wouldn't do, which is to really question your faith and to question the way that you see the world – how are you different today? Like, what has it? Have you have you become a happier person? Has it um, changed your life in any kind of positive way, or or do you wish you didn't make the change in the first place? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's it's like uh, I think it's an Aristotle quote: uh, the true sign of an intelligence of an intelligent person is to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it right? <laughs> or rejecting it. I love it, uh, and so. It was extremely difficult for me in the beginning because I had this very strict worldview. It was rigid and unbending. Mm -hmm. And uh, my life circumstances just kind of threw me into the mix in such a way that I was forced to reevaluate my my life situation. Uh, it was really because I became the undercover agent. Uh, my role in the case became very public. And the community then, or some uh, elements in the community, really didn't like that. Mm. Uh, I was, you know, blacklisted by them. Uh, I was there were questions on my faith. 
is this guy, this guy's not even a Muslim anymore because, you know, he did X, Y, Z. So I I had to uh, ask myself, I'm like, do I want to be a part of a community that thinks by me infiltrating a terrorist organization, that's a wrong thing to do? Right. I can't be. I cannot be around these people. It cannot be that the religion that I follow, from my understanding, uh, my I guess my newer understanding after the extremist years, I can't understand how this this jives with it. And sure enough, I realized that it didn't jive with it. Right? I mm-hmm. could see the faults of the people uh, in their conclusions. I could see the cognitive biases that they were engaging in the lack of experience, the lack of knowledge, all these things. Mm-hmm. And so I gained that knowledge. You know, while I was giving testimony in this terrorism case, I obtained my master's degree. Right. Right. I I, I had to be the multitasker, right? I couldn't just sit there. And so uh, I, I, you know, I say like basically what happened in 2009. So, you know, for almost 15 years, I, I walked around with a giant beard, a black turban, a long robe down to my middle of my legs. Uh, and then that was the rigid Taliban look that I had kept up for so long. Mm-hmm. And then, you know what I realized? I was like, I don't want to be like this anymore. I, I actually thought I cannot have the influence in the places that I need to have influence in looking the way that I do. Right. So I thought I need to reinvent myself. And so what I did is I, I took my beard right off. I mean, it was still like, you know, closely shaved to the face. Right. You could still see it was like a small beard. Mm-hmm. But that giant beard was gone. And... My, it's funny. My kids almost didn't recognize me. Wow. But, you know, my younger daughter, like, so what I, what I ended up doing was now, uh, I don't know if you have a modern picture of me or whatever, but like now I just keep like a uh, a small, like just along the jawline beard. Right. And my daughter says to me, she's like, you know what? You look much more handsome now. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And, and I got rid of the robe and I got a nice shirt, a nice tie. Mm-hmm. And... What do you know? I suddenly I look sharp. I look good. Right. And now people are list. Now they're paying more attention to me. And so uh, I I frequently I say that I felt a huge weight had been lifted off of me. Interesting. A huge weight. And so yeah, to your question, I'm definitely happier now. Um, I have a lot more opportunities in my life now. Uh, the relationship with my family is better. With my friends is better. With the society at large is better. And and really, I think because of the cross examination that I got in court from defense lawyers, I I can't I don't have a tough interview. Pe- I've never had a tough interview after court. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you can't ask me now. tough questions. It's easy now, right? So yeah. I, I am just so chill now, and it, it just feels so much better. And and what's it like with your children then? You said you got three teenagers. What's their relationship with? religion through the eyes of 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 you because i know that you've told me in the past that your wife is still uh quite devout with with her faith yeah that's it's so crazy (laughs) so my wife is is a polish convert i mean i met her in high school uh she used to be you know freaky goth chick before that (laughs) and uh it's funny because she used to say when she dressed up like that people used to say to her hey it's not halloween right you know and now she's this super pious Muslim lady, uh, super pious, you know, wears the head covering. Right. And people say the same thing to her. They're like, hey, it's not Halloween or whatever. Yeah, she, she still gets it. at it because it's like, see, you know, this is people are like that, right? And right. she's so she for her, she doesn't care. Right. She and, and like I mentioned, she is super pious. OK. Um, but the kids, uh, she we I mean, just the way that we are, we're both products of the West again. Mm hmm. Uh, you know, freedoms and freedom of religion, freedom of thought. And uh, I specifically was not going to raise my children the way that I was raised. Mm -hmm. I did not want to, uh, you know, scare them with the stories of fire and brimstone. Uh, You know, there's a great tradition in Islam where, you know, God says uh, the first revelation, according to Islam, uh, that God gave to human beings is my mercy prevails over my wrath. Oh, okay. So, so that just totally took away that whole fire and brimstone approach to religion. Right. And I've just switched to the God is merciful. God is love. God wants you to love other people, mm. wants you to be merciful to other people. So while I saw like my own life, I was forced to go to Quran school when I was a kid. I was forced to go to the mosque to pray. If I didn't pray right, I would get smacked and slapped by the teachers there or whatever. I didn't want my kids to grow up like that. They would grow up to hate the religion. Right. 
So I've taken the completely uh, opposite approach, very laid back, very relaxed. And according to my parents, too relaxed. Sure. You know? yeah, of so, course. Yeah. But because I'm, again, I'm a product of the society. My kids are going to live in this society. If I want that my, the religious values to be a part of their future, then I have to make sure that I code it into their psyche in a very responsible way that they don't end up rejecting it out of uh, spite later on. I think that's the only way. That's that's a great yep. approach. Absolutely. Okay, one last question for you, and give give me you know this in in a, in a succinct way because I I want to make sure that uh, I, I I pull out just like the the, the meaty the meatiest part of this. Um, you've really been true to yourself now. You had to be true to yourself over the last uh, many years since you've made these decisions to move closer to what made sense for you. What would you describe? How would you say like what does it mean to be true to yourself it doesn't with respect to, to anything it doesn't have to be with respect to religion or to being a man or being a canadian what does it mean to just be true to yourself in general uh, i think a uh, very simple answer and i believe this is the same definition given to uh integrity it is to do the right thing when no one else is looking oh wow i like that that's it to do the right thing when no one else is looking oh isn't that fantastic yeah yep. Yeah, it's 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 like I you could, you uh, you get more change from the cashier than you're supposed to get, and no one knows. And you it's you in, in that moment you have a choice. You can keep it, and no one's gonna know, or you can say, hey, look, you know what? You just gave me more than you're supposed to there. That's right. That's great. Well, I love that movie. This has been such a great conversation. I got to tell you, um, I, I forgot because we haven't spoken for a long time that you're, 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 you're just like, I love how you just pull out these quotes and from philosophers, you're a, you're a poet and you're a, you're a scholar, you're a, uh, an educated man, you're a worldly man. And I love uh, all the things that came out in this conversation, always things that I never expect. So um, thank you for taking the time to you know, share your thoughts with my listeners, because I know that everyone listening to the show today is going to really take away um, some interesting little nuggets that will might just cause them to think about their life a little bit differently. And folks, for those of you who are listening right now, I hope you do. I hope you really take to heart what uh, Mubin has said today because um, he's taken some big risks to be true to himself. And as you can hear, it's been uh, it's been worth it. So, so Mubin, for anyone who wants to kind of stay in your world or follow you, what, what are the best ways for them to do it? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I put out this public messaging, of course. Uh, so, I mean, I'm on Twitter at uh, Mr. Mubin Sheikh. Uh, I'm on Facebook as well. I'm on LinkedIn for the professionals among you. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, uh, uh, you know, it's it's been a it's been a, an interesting ride. Uh, it's not always uh, happy. It's not always fun. I mean, you you know, in order to to really live to your principles, you know, sometimes you you're gonna lose other things in your life too, right? That's that's just part of the reality. So, thanks a lot, Stuart, man, for uh, for this chat. It was uh, it was fun. Uh, not as fun as the last time we got together, but hey, <laughs> um, that's that's going to be our next opportunity. So. Well, you know what? We didn't have a, a a thousand people staring at us in the audience this time around. So, but they're all staring at us through the uh, through the through the lens of this microphone. So, uh, thanks, my friend, and I really appreciate it. And I wish you nothing but the best with your next adventure. Right on, brother. All the same, and best back to you. Thanks so much. The number you have dialed has been changed. Thank you for tuning in to the Stuart Knight Show. We hope you've enjoyed this powerful conversation. People are fascinating, and so are you. And the right questions will prove it. We'll prove it. <laughs>